few years ago, one of our kids went through a phase, maybe some of you went through, where she was asking some important questions about the world. And so we would be driving around somewhere and she might ask, I wonder what it feels like to be a dog. I don't know if you've ever asked that type of question. What does it feel like to not be me, but to be some other creature? Uh, She expanded this, not just to dogs and cats, but she would actually say things like, what must it be like to be a tree or that plant or something along those lines? And my favorite one actually was we were sitting at breakfast one morning. She was about to eat a bite of yogurt and she looked at it and she said, what must it feel like to be my yogurt? I thought, you know, I don't know. That's an existential gap. I'm not sure we can bridge. I don't know. But let's take something a little closer to us, a dog, a cat. How, what, what could we do to figure out what must it feel like to be a dog? I suppose we could study it, right? We could, we could put the dog under a, a microscope or parts of it under a microscope. We could watch it. We could read about a dog. We could try to communicate with the dog, which some of us do. Maybe you talk to your dog. Your dog understands a few words. You could try to listen to your dog. See if your dog's trying to say anything to you. There might be a lot of ways you could try to understand what does it feel like to be a dog, but in the final analysis, the only way to know would be to what? To be a dog, right? You, if you could, could enter into the world of a dog. Let's just say hypothetically you could do that. That would be the best way to know what it's like to be a dog. You become a dog and you learn all of the feelings and customs that go along with being a dog. That'd be the only way to bridge that gap, right? When we look at the scripture and we look at the gap between us and God, the reality is that in many ways, that gap is a lot greater than the gap between us and a a dog or a cat. We are made in God's image. So in certain respects, we reflect God. We reflect the character of God. We have the potential to reflect the glory of God. But in other respects, there are huge gaps between us and God. God is infinite. We are finite. We are bound to time. God is eternal. God sees the present, past, and future perfectly. We cannot. We are in physical form and confined to bodies. God is spirit and is not confined by anything. We're sinful and God is perfect. That last gap between sinful people and a perfect God, that last one from a theological perspective and from the perspective of our own destiny is maybe the most important one for us to deal with. The gap between sinful people and a perfect God is a huge gap. And unless that gap is bridged, there's no way for us to have a relationship with God. As long as that gap stays in place, that gap between sinful people and a perfect God, as long as that gap stays in place, we are destined for an eternity apart from God in hell. We're destined for death. And so one of the major themes of the Bible is how do we bridge that gap when we are people who not only do we uh, sin in ways we're not aware of, we sin in ways we are aware of. We choose sin. We choose darkness. We choose to walk away from God. How can that gap be bridged? Well, as we enter into the Christmas season, the story of Christmas is the story of how God bridged that gap. How God bridged the gap between finite, time-bound, sinful people and an infinite, eternal, sinless God. 
When we celebrate Christmas, what we're celebrating is God sending His Son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who said, it's not only that I want to observe you from a distance. It's not only that I want to communicate with you through a book. But instead, God said, I love you so much, I want to be with you. And He became one of us to bridge that gap. That's the message of Christmas. When we talk about Christmas, there's a word that we use in connection with Christmas. It's the word incarnation. The incarnation is the theological word that we use simply to mean Jesus became a person. He took on flesh. Incarnation comes from a Latin word, and it basically means the enfleshment, right? It is God becoming a person. And as we, as we look throughout the New Testament, that is, uh, that is at the, the bottom of the Christmas story. That's at the foundation of the Christmas story, is that God came to be with us. Look at Matthew chapter 1 for just a moment. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now, if you've read the Bible, you know that his name was not always called Emmanuel, right? His name was Jesus. So why here in Matthew 1 does it say his name will be called Emmanuel? Because Matthew is saying the baby that was born on that first Christmas is a fulfillment of this prophecy that Isaiah made, that God would be with us. Emmanuel means God is here with us. John chapter 1 puts it this way says, and the Word became flesh. Now, if you remember John chapter 1, John 1 begins with the Word at the very beginning. John 1, 1. And the Word, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And he goes on to say, all things were created through Him. Who's the Word? It was Jesus, the second person of the Trinity who was with God from the foundation of the world before time began. And here in verse 14, he says that one. The Word of God was incarnated, became flesh, and dwelled among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. What is John saying? Before Jesus came, we could hear about God. God would speak from the heavens from time to time. He sent prophets. But he said nobody had seen him. Nobody could really understand him. But he said, here's what happened is Jesus, the word of God came. And the word of God came to do what? Explain God. That's why Jesus is called the word. Because he explains God to us in a way that no other speech could ever explain God. You want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. You want to know if God loves you, you look at Jesus. You want to know what God's love looks like, you look at Jesus. So that as we look at the incarnation then this morning, there are a few principles that we learn from the incarnation of Jesus Christ that I want to talk about. Three primary principles we're going to talk about this morning. One is this, the incarnation of Jesus Christ shows us that God loves us. The incarnation of Jesus Christ shows us that God loves us. In other words, you want to know that God loves you, you look at Jesus. Shows us that God understands us and shows us that God is saving us. So that as we enter into Christmas, what we're going to see is that the child who was born in Bethlehem is God's way of reaching into our world and saying, I want to bridge that gap. You want to know me? You look at Jesus. 
You wonder if I love you? You look at Jesus. You wonder if there's a way out of the mess of this world and the mess of your sin? You look at Jesus. So we're going to see this morning. The incarnation then, first of all, tells us this, that God loves us. God loves us. First verse you probably learned in Sunday school as a kid, John 3, 16. How does it begin? For God so what? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, there were a lot of things that Jesus did when he came to earth, but at the foundation of the incarnation is the concept that God loves us. God sends Jesus because he loves us. First John chapter four, verse 10. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is, Jesus came because God loved us. He sent his son and Jesus then dealt with our sin. Now, I wanna make a critical point. In no other religious system other than the God we see in the Bible, No other religious system do we see a God that loves sinners. There's no other system in which we see a God who looks at people who have turned away from him, who have disobeyed him, who have run away and says, I still want to know them. I want to be with them. So think, for example, of the God of Islam named Allah. Who does Allah love? Well, if you read their books, who does Allah love? Allah loves those who do what is right, right? You do what is right, Allah loves you. Long as you're obeying, Allah loves you. You stop obeying, Allah turns away from you. Okay, but what do we see in the scripture? We see a God who looks at people like us who are running away, diving into sin and darkness, and he moves closer. And he doesn't just move closer. He crosses the universe to be with us. If you wonder at times whether God really loves you, the incarnation says it. God loves us. And Jesus himself came willingly out of his love for his people. Remember Philippians 2, earlier this semester, we talked about how Jesus, who had the highest position in the universe, willingly descended to the lowest place possible, death on a cross for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Look at that that phrase again. For your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus came because he loves you. I ran across an article earlier this year about, about a man who was overseas in the military. He was in Kosovo serving in the military, but his son was about to graduate from high school. Man's name was Damon Solomon. And so what Damon Solomon did was he secretly arranged to take a leave for a few days so that he could come back for his son's high school graduation. It was hard to arrange. It was difficult. But he managed to arrange it and he came and he kept it a secret and he surprised his son at his graduation. Of course, there was video of it and people were crying and he gave his son a hug and he said, I wouldn't miss this for the world, your graduation from high school. I thought, man, that's remarkable because his name, Damon Solomon, he could have written a letter, right? He could have written a letter or sent a card, said, you know what, son, I love you. I'm thinking about you. Congratulations. 
Maybe he could have arranged some sort of phone call, Skype or something like that. I don't know. To say, hey, I love you. I'm there with you. But he said, no, the way that I want to show my love, the best way to show my love is to be with you. And so he flew across the ocean to be with his son, to say, I love you. All right, Jesus says that the way that I want to show my love is to be with you. It's John 1 again. He came and he did what? He lived among us. And while Jesus was among us, he had friends, he had family, he had disciples, and he expressed his love to them just like you express your love for your family. There were words of affection, there were hugs, there, were, there was time around a meal. Because Jesus loved us for our sake, he became poor. Those of you who are married, maybe you've had some experience in your marriage where you tried to move close to your spouse. And for whatever reason, maybe they were tired. Maybe they weren't paying attention. Maybe they were angry at you for something. You tried to move close and they pulled away, right? So you said, I want to kiss and they kind of pulled away or a hug or whatever. And how does that make you feel? What is your response when something like that happens? Well, I guarantee you 90% of the time, your response is not to move closer, is it? You say, all right, you want to move away? I'll show you move away, right? And so you move away. And then they respond by moving away. That's the sin nature. And that's what we do, right? We initiate with somebody and they move away. We say, fine. And we walk away or move away. What does Jesus do? We walk away and Jesus keeps coming. Says, I love you. And he chases us across the universe and becomes one of us. If you're in the midst of trial, if you're in the midst of exhaustion, and you ask that question like we all do, does God love me? God, if you love me, why is this happening? Why is my life this way? You look at Jesus. See, the mistake that a lot of times we make is in the midst of trial and and suffering, we say, if God loved me, this wouldn't happen. But then we look at Jesus. We say, no, God, God loves you because he sent his son. And as we'll see in a moment, his son entered our world and his son experienced suffering and rejection and death. Did God love Jesus? You better believe it. So our circumstances and our trials are not where we look for whether God loves us, but we look at Jesus. And so the incarnation, as we look at those nativity scenes this Christmas, we remind ourselves that the incarnation tells us that God loves us. Secondly, the incarnation tells us that God understands us. What I mean by that is that nobody can say anymore that God doesn't get you. God doesn't understand you. Every experience that you and I have had, every experience of suffering or trial or anguish emotionally, even experiences of joy, Jesus understands because Jesus experienced the life that we experience. All of us want to know, we all want to have that sense that somebody understands us, right? We, we want to have that sense when we're going through something that somebody above us knows what's going on and gets it. Any of you who have flown on an airplane 
in the last, say, eight or ten years, you've probably noticed that everything has gotten smaller, right? The, the seats are smaller. They've shrunk. The, the, the space in front of you is smaller, right? Everything's gotten smaller as most of us have gotten larger, Right, so you, you get in a plane and you, you're crammed in there, right? And the guy in front of you reclines his seat to the point that you could comb his hair if you wanted to. There's no space in the overhead bins. People are angry. They're shoving. They're fighting for armrests. And it's uncomfortable. And I don't know if you've ever had the thought like I have had when I'm sitting in that environment going, have the people in charge ever sat back here? The people who run this thing, do they know what we're going through? In fact, a couple of years ago, the Wall Street Journal ran a story in which they asked CEOs of major airlines to come and sit in the coach section to experience it. Now, to their credit, some of those CEOs said, yeah, we we fly coach sometimes. But they came for this story and they, they had this deal, you know, when CEOs try the cheap seats and here's these CEOs and they're sitting in the coach section on an empty plane, right? I remember, I remember looking at it and they're like, no, this is good. I'm fine back here. I'm like, man, I have never flown on an empty plane in my life, right? I just would love an empty seat next to me. I don't know if you're like me and you sit down and, and as people are coming in, that seat is still empty and you begin, you just pray, you know, Lord, I don't ask for a lot in life. But if this seat could be empty, like I promise I will witness to the person two seats down. I'll do it. (laughs) But you wonder, like, does anybody up there know what's going on back here? Right? We ask that about our lives, don't we? Hey, God, does anybody up there know what's going on down here? Do you get it? The incarnation tells us in the most powerful way possible. God gets it because Jesus, the Word made flesh, experienced it. Let me show you just a few of the experiences Jesus had while he was on earth. What did Jesus experience? Jesus experienced rejection. John 1, 9 to 11 says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. He came to his people, to his nation to his world, the people that he made, and we said, no, thank you. He experienced rejection. If you ever feel loneliness, isolation, rejection, Jesus has felt it too. Jesus experienced hunger and thirst and fatigue. John chapter 4, he sits down by a well in Samaria, because he's tired after the journey. In Matthew chapter 21, in Jerusalem, it says Jesus got hungry, so he went to a fig tree to try to get something to eat. And the fig tree didn't have anything to eat, so Jesus cursed it to a life of barrenness, something that uh, we can't do, but maybe you've wanted to do if you've opened an empty pantry, right? John 19, it says Jesus was thirsty. If you're tired, you say, I don't know how I'm going to keep moving, but I have to keep moving. Jesus knows. He's experienced it. Jesus experienced physical pain. John chapter 19 and Matthew 27 both describe the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. 
He had nails through his wrists and feet, crown of thorns on his head. He was beaten. He experienced physical pain of a magnitude that most of us don't know. Jesus experienced further alienation from God. If you ever had that feeling of, God, where are you? I don't see where you are in the midst of my pain. Jesus, Jesus knows that feeling. On the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, God, if there's any way to take this cup from me, any way that I cannot go to the cross, please do it. But not my will, but your will. Right? Jesus knows the pain of alienation from the Father and the pain of unanswered prayer. Jesus understands the pain of losing friends and loved ones. Matthew chapter 14, after the death of his friend John the Baptist, his cousin, Jesus goes out by himself to pray and to grieve. John chapter 11, after the death of his friend Lazarus, We see as John 11 moves forward that Jesus, even though he knew he would be able to raise Lazarus from the dead, what did Jesus do? He wept. He knows that pain. Philip Yancey put it this way, that that Jesus gives God a face and that face is streaked with tears. He knows. He understands, in fact, family turmoil. If you feel that your family is dysfunctional, you're in good company with Jesus. John chapter 7 says that not even Jesus' brothers believed in him. His family didn't believe in him. If you would think that anybody in the world should believe in Jesus, it'd be his family. But they didn't, at least not until much later. Jesus knew that pain. There's nothing you or I experience that Jesus doesn't understand. So in those moments when we say, hey, does anybody up there know what's going on down here? The incarnation of Jesus Christ tells us, yeah. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Jesus has experienced what we experience, now as he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, he's able to help us. That's what Hebrews says. He's able to help us because he understands and he has the power to help. And so the scripture tells us, look, there's nothing you've gone through that Jesus doesn't get. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. What is Peter saying? He's saying, if you want to understand what God thinks about pain and suffering. And if you want to understand how to respond, you look at Jesus. 
who experienced all that we experience. And yet he kept trusting God. So when the scripture says, hey, in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of the darkness of this world, the scripture says, trust in God. That's not merely a platitude to distract you. Instead, it's a profound way for the scripture and for God to tell us, you can trust in me because I know what's happening and I've got a plan. And Jesus trusted God's plan so that Peter would say, now you look at his footsteps and you, just, you place your feet in his footsteps and you follow him. So that Christmas tells us God loves us, God understands us. And then thirdly, God is saving us. God is saving us. See, we don't just need somebody who understands from a distance. We need somebody to get us out of the mess. Right? That's, that's really the cry of our heart is we need somebody to get us out of all of the, the mess that we're in. Not just the mess of the world, but the, the mess of our own hearts. We have a real problem. Because we want to know God, but we we still disobey. We want to be with him, but we don't want to do what he says. So that as you look throughout the scripture, what you see is is, is that humanity consistently runs away from God. Hebrews chapter 1, fascinating passage. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his son. What is Hebrews 1 getting at? That all throughout history, God has been speaking, right? He spoke throughout creation. He speaks in our conscience. He speaks through the prophets. He speaks through the scriptures. Periodically throughout the Old Testament, God did amazing miracles, I don't know if you've ever heard somebody say, look, if God would just do something dramatic, I would believe him. Ask how well that turned out for the people of Israel. For whom God did miracle after miracle and they continued to reject him. And Hebrews says, you know what? God kept speaking and speaking and speaking. And what happened was we kept turning away. So he sent a rescuer. Because he said, you're you're not going to get it on your own. You're not going to pull yourself out of the mess. You need a savior. I don't know how many of you will remember from last summer the story of the 12 boys and their coach who were trapped in a cave in Thailand. We all followed it with interest. They had gone into this cave to explore and then it began to rain and they were trapped in the cave because the water filled up their exit points. And so rescuers watched them for a little bit to try to figure out what can we do for them? Because it's dangerous to send people in. So they had all sorts of possible plans. Maybe we should just wait and send them supplies until the water recedes. They thought maybe we should uh, communicate with them and give them instructions for how they can get out, right? How could they dive and get themselves out of the mess? Right, So they they came up with plan after plan. And in the final analysis, they said, you know what? The situation is getting too dire. None of those plans are going to work. We got to send rescue. And so they sent men into where the boys were to pull them out. That's the message of the scripture. And that's what we see at Christmas. Is that all throughout the Bible, we see God speaking. We see God talking. To say, follow me, 
and I am where life is found. And we say, nope, nope. And so he says, follow me. And he sends another prophet. And he does another miracle. And we say, nope. And so God sends a Savior. We are, as people, very distractible with poor memories and an inability to obey. Those of you who have kids, maybe especially male children, you understand this concept. Because perhaps you said at some point to a child, to to your son, hey son, go feed the dog. And he says, okay. And he begins to walk toward where the dog is. But for some reason, halfway there, he turns. And he begins to go somewhere else. You're like, hey son, where are you going? Oh, I got to tell my sister something. Why? How could you possibly have forgotten what I just said to you four seconds ago? Oh yeah, I better do that. Go back again. Feed half of the dog's bowl, right? And then they move on. That's what we see in the scripture when we talk about humanity. God says, hey, obey me. And and that's where life is. And we go, okay. And then we go, oh, look. And we go somewhere else. Because we chase every idol of our heart. And we run away from God. And so God says, you need a savior. You're not going to figure this out. You're not going to pull yourself out of the mess. Only God entering into human history as a human baby, God in the flesh, to become one of us and then to die for us, a perfect sacrifice, fully God, fully man. And then to rise again as a statement from God that I accept the sacrifice of my son for your sin. So that now that the gap between mankind and God is bridged. And everybody who trusts in Jesus Christ has hope for eternal life. An unshakable hope that Jesus will return. Do you know what Jesus' name means? Some of you know this, some of you do not. Jesus' name is a Greek form of a Hebrew name that you're also familiar with. The Hebrew name is Joshua or Yeshua, right? It's a, it's a Hebrew word that means Yahweh saves, right? This is why when the angel Gabriel came to talk to Joseph about the baby, he said, she will bear a son and you'll call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sin. Emmanuel, God with us, is Jesus, the God who saves. Because God loves us and he understands us and he's saving us. John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. The light shines on in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. What is John saying? He says, in the beginning was the Word, right? And the Word was with God and the Word was God. 
and he made everything. But then his creation turned to darkness. And so what did God do on that first Christmas some 2,000 years ago? He grabbed a light and he sent it to us, his son. Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness. And the darkness can't overcome it. Darkness cannot defeat light. Once you turn on a light, the darkness can't win. It can't win. Right? You, you, you look around this room and, yeah, there are some dark corners, right? But the lights illuminate so you can see. The darkness can't beat the light. So that the message of Christmas is that we have hope that no matter the darkness of our own hearts, no matter the darkness of the world around us, the weight of sin and suffering and death, all are overcome by that child. That's the message of the incarnation. God loves us. God understands us. God is saving us. Now, if you are like me, sometimes you forget these things. You get distracted. Or maybe if you're like me, sometimes you doubt these things. When things get hard and painful. Maybe you have an extremely busy Christmas season. For some of you, it's going to be like every other Christmas. It's busy. You're running 120 miles an hour, getting people everywhere they need to be and and engaging in all the festivities. And you just forget to make room in your heart to remember what Jesus has done. But it may be for some of you this season is painful because over the last year or two, you've experienced losses that make Christmas painful. And so it's not that you forget, it's that that you doubt. Whichever situation you find yourself, I want to provide this reminder this morning and then throughout the Christmas season. If Jesus came, you can take it to the bank. God loves us. God understands us. God is saving us. And so what I did this week is uh, I created something for you to take home. All right, so on the back tables back here, there are some green cards. I designed them myself. So there's no graphics. It's just words on a green card. It's not fancy, but it'll do the trick. It's because I thought of it on Thursday and I didn't want to ask the graphics department and get them to hate me for the rest of my life. So... It's on the back tables. You grab one on your way out. It just says these three things. God loves us. God understands us. God is saving us. And it's got some verses to go along with it. There's enough for everybody. And here's what you can do is you take that and you put it somewhere you will see it every day. Put it on your mirror where you get ready. Put it on the dash of your car. Put it on your Bible. Put it somewhere where you say, I'm going to see this every day. Tape it over the screen of your smartphone. And then you'll remember. So throughout the season, say, God loves me. God understands me. God is saving me. The child who came to Bethlehem 2,000 years ago tells us who God is and what he's doing to get us out of the mess of sin and death. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. 
But even more, we thank you for your son, the word. Father, you could have, you could have sat at a distance. You could have told us you made your choice to run away and let us perish in our sin. Father, we recognize you would have been justified to do that. Oh, but we thank you that's not who you are. That you came to get us. Father, we praise you. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior. We thank you for the salvation he offered. Lord, I pray if there are any men or women in the room today who have never come to know you through Jesus, we pray this would be the morning that your spirit would speak to their hearts and they would trust in you. Father, for those in the room who have trusted in Jesus, we pray that we would cling to the truth of your word. As we walk through this season of of joy that is often also mixed with suffering and pain, remind us of who you are and allow us to praise you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.